The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 13 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC13. This is Secret Church 13, Episode 5. All right. He has not returned, so we continue with the resurrection of the dead. So whether here in Birmingham or in other church buildings or homes, you're finding your seat, pulling back out. We're just going to dive right in to where we left off with the resurrection of the dead. So we have now talked about how one day Christ will physically return. And, and like we've mentioned, we talked about intermediate state. He's going to raise us up bodily with him. This is a hope that we see all throughout Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament light. Job said, Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. At last he will stand upon the earth. After that, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. In my flesh. You get to Romans 8. We ourselves are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So Piper, commenting on this passage, said, Christianity is not a Platonic religion that regards material things as mere shadows of reality that will be sloughed off as soon as, soon as possible. Not the mere or immortality of the soul, but rather the resurrection of the body and renewal of all creation is the hope of the Christian faith. Spurgeon says it even more clearly. The resurrection of the body is the Christian's brightest hope. Many believers... Follow this. Many believers make a mistake when they long to die and long for heaven. Those things may be desirable, but they're not the ultimate for the saints. The saints in heaven are perfectly free from sin, and so far as they're capable of it, are perfectly happy. But a disembodied spirit never can be perfect until it's reunited to its body. God made man not pure spirit, but body and spirit. And the spirit alone will never be content until it sees its physical frame raised to its own condition of holiness and glory. Think not that our longing here below are not shared in by the saints of heaven. They do not groan so far as any pain can be, but they long with greater intensity than you and I do for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. People have said there's no faith in heaven and no hope. They know not what they say. In heaven, faith and hope have their fullest swing and their brightest sphere for glorified saints believe in God's promise and hope for the resurrection of the body. So we're talking about with the intermediate state that we are longing for the resurrection of our body, even while we are with the Lord in heaven. So what is this resurrection of the dead that's our hope? Well, first and foremost, we need to realize that our hope of resurrection is grounded in the fundamental, rea- fundamental reality that Jesus rose from the dead, which is a fundamental truth here in 1 Corinthians 15, expressed when Paul gives testimony in Acts chapter 3. And this is the truth upon which the gospel stands or falls. The reality is, if there's no Easter Sunday, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are wasting our time tonight. And we are to be pitied among men. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, 1 Corinthians 15 says, pity Christians if Jesus didn't rise from the dead because they based their lives for eternity on a lie. And so we need to know, is this true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And throughout history, there have been possible explanations that have been put forward for Jesus' resurrection. Throughout history, some have proposed that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Muslims, for example, say that Jesus didn't even go to the cross. Somebody who looked like Jesus went to the cross. That's what Muhammad teaches in the Quran. Never mind the fact that Muhammad teaches this six centuries later when those much closer to the historical situation, both Christian and non-Christian light, reported that it was indeed Jesus who was on the cross. But then there's others who say it was Jesus on the cross, but he didn't die there. He was just hurt really, 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 really bad. Now, in 
And, and because they were rushing, because the Passover, they brought him down before he was dead, and they buried him, put him in the tomb before he was dead. Now, that explanation assumes that Jesus went through six trials, no sleep, a brutal scourging, thorns thrust into, into his head, nails thrust into his hands and feet, after hours on a cross, had a spear thrust into his side. Then they wrapped him in grave clothes, put him in a, stone, put him in a tomb with a stone rolled over the entrance that was guarded by Roman soldiers. So we're to believe that Jesus regained consciousness unraveled himself, hopped out of the tomb, nudged the stone out of the way, hopped past the guard standing nearby, and coolly went about his way. I don't think that's the most plausible explanation. Next one, people say Jesus was not, his tomb was not empty. This is described as the wrong tomb theory. Basically, the, the, woman, the women and the disciples went to the wrong tomb on that day, and ever since then, people have been going to the wrong tomb if only they check next door, which, which obviously, if, if anybody wanted there to be a, a a body in a tomb. It was Roman authorities, Jewish authorities. That's why they posted guards there. No one would have believed Jesus had risen from the grave if they would have just said, well, if you look next door. So we stand on pretty firm ground that this tomb was empty. Now that doesn't in and of itself prove the resurrection of Jesus. Some people say the disciples stole the body of Jesus. So there's a conspiracy theory, so to speak, that assumes that these timid, scared Galilean disciples who were ashamed to even admit they knew Jesus fled away from Jesus the night before concocted this, 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 this plan, outmaneuvered a guard of highly disciplined and skilled Roman soldiers in, in order to do all that the Jewish and Roman authorities were making sure would not happen. Likely not the case. Then other people say, well, the disciples were just delusional when they claimed to see Jesus. After all, they didn't have all the scientific knowledge that we have today. They were prone to believe more in the supernatural. So they, maybe they were just hallucinating. Again, the, the reality is, this, this idea of resurrection was unthinkable in their worldview. There was no, there's no according to, to this whole theory, there'd be have to at least be some process and thought to think, okay, there's, this, this could be believable. But that wasn't even where to, where to be found in that day. And then hallucinations don't normally eat and drink. And you can't feel them and touch them like we see in Paul. And that's why you see in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul saying, there are, there are hundreds of people, over 500 people who Jesus, has appeared, who Jesus has appeared to. Go and talk to them and you will see that he is alive. Eyewitness testimony. So what if I told you that in preparation for the Masters Golf Tournament in a couple of weeks, Tiger Woods gave me a call this last week because he wanted some tips. He wanted me to play a practice round with him, help him out a little with his game. And so I did. It was a busy week and ready for Secret Church. But I thought, hey, for Tiger, why not share the gospel with him? So, so I did. We went out and I showed him how to work on his drive, get a little farther on his drive. Showed him on his putting. On one par three that we were hitting on, I actually hit a hole in one. He was pretty impressed. Even asked if somehow I could substitute with him in the tournament. And Now, if that's the case... You can easily go to Tiger Woods and say, do you have any clue who David Platt is or how terrible a golfer he is? And he'd probably say, I have no clue how, who David Platt is, and I can imagine he's a terrible golfer. And you could verify that, which is the whole picture here. Paul's saying the whole New Testament is written in the context of he's alive and people have seen him. And, and not only have they seen him, but they're losing their lives for proclaiming that they've seen him. Pascal said, I believe the witnesses that get their throats cut. So when you put all that together, we've only got one possible explanation. Jesus died on the cross and actually rose from the grave. We're not talking resuscitation, reincarnation, resurrection. We're not re resuscitation or reincarnation. We're talking resurrection. Dead for three days, came back to life. And if that's true, there are some starting implications. He is Lord over life and death. Absolute authority over life and death. Who determines when they live? Who among us determined one day, you know, I'd like to come to life, and you told your parents that. 
Who among us, when your heart flatlines for three days, has the authority to say, I'm going to live again? He has authority over life and death. He is Lord over sin and Satan, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. And he is Lord over you and me. The reality is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we don't have to worry about a thing he said. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then we have to listen to everything he said. And not just listen, but submit to everything he said. To believe in the resurrection of Christ and to surrender to the lordship of Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, based on his resurrection, I want us to begin to think about our resurrection. Resurrection of Christ, resurrection of Christians. So here at the end of this passage in John 5, Jesus says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So truth number one, Jesus rose from the dead. We've already seen he's coming back. So follow this. When the resurrected Christ returns, Christians will experience physical resurrection with him. Paul makes this connection in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So Christ was raised from the dead, and his resurrection was the firstfruits, the foretaste of resurrection from the dead for all those who belong in Christ. Now this is where I want us to focus, specifically on the resurrection of Christians. Obviously John 5 talked about those who have done evil being resurrected, judgment. We're going to get to that. But focus here, because this is where most of Scripture focuses on, the resurrection of Christians. I don't know if it's possible to sum it up any better than this quote from the Valley of Vision. Puritan phrase, that will come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the stars in their courses, and gives life to all creatures. So here's what Scripture teaches. First, most believers will die. And I emphasize most there, because there's a bit of a contradiction here with what we said earlier, that death in this world is inevitable. It's inevitable until you factor in the return of Christ. And the reality is Jesus is going to come back one day, and some people are going to be alive on that day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment when the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So most, almost all believers in history are going to die. Well, wouldn't it be awesome to be among those who are living when he returns? To see the completion of the Great Commission. So let's live for that. So most believers will die. But all believers, regardless of whether or not they were dead or are dead or alive on that day, will be resurrected with Christ. All believers will receive a resurrected body. So what 1 Thessalonians 4, which we read earlier, talks about. So follow this. Those who are alive when Christ returns will be physically transformed in their bodies. And those who are dead when Christ returns will be physically reunited with their bodies, just like we've talked about. So intermediate state is intermediate for a reason. Physical bodily resurrection is coming. Just as Jesus' body was raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised from the dead. And the Bible talks about our resurrected bodies. What does it say? It says our, the Bible says our resurrection bodies will be Christ-like, Philippians 3, 20-21. When Jesus comes, he will transform our low, lowly body to be like his glorious body. 1 John 3 says, when he appears, we shall be like him. So our resurrection bodies will be Christ-like. They will be physical. Our resurrection bodies will be physical just as Jesus' body was physical with hands and feet that you can touch. This is so key. That's why I put 1 Corinthians 6 right here. Because the Bible views the physical body apart from sin the physical body is holy, good, and valuable. The body is not a bad thing. The body is not anti-spiritual. Even when we talk about 
the flesh is our sinful nature. We need to realize that our flesh and bones body, going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, before sin entered the, wor- sin entered the world, our body was created to be good. This is why when the Bible talks about ultimate salvation, the end of the story is not our souls united in the presence of God, but our bodies risen with our souls to enjoy the presence of God. And there are implications here for our lives on earth when you think about this. So bring this reality that's coming in the future resurrection of our bodies to the way we live today. We know that our bodies are good, created by God for His glory. Our hope is in a redeemed, resurrected body. So on this earth, we dare not ignore the care of our bodies, which is a dangerous temptation for us. There can be a huge lack of discipline in our lives, particularly in American culture when it comes to eating, exercise, and sleep, where we ignore the care of our bodies. And that is to ignore, to ignore the care of our bodies is to sin. 1 Corinthians 6, glorify God with your body. Russell Moore said, because we believe in the resurrection of the body, we know our bodies are not expendable vehicles for our souls, and they are certainly not playthings for our amusement. In view of the resurrection of our bodies in eternity, we dare not ignore the care of our bodies on earth. At the same time, we must be careful not to go to the other end of the spectrum. We must not idolize the care of our bodies. Thinking that this earthly body right now is what I'm living for. Paul writes this letter of, to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, with the church of Ephesus in mind. Most scholars believe that the Ephesians spent a great deal of time and money training athletes for a variety of festivals. It was a craze, so to speak. So midway through this passage, Paul writes, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So follow that. Physical training is not bad. Definitely not bad, but it's not best. So this is key. Hear this. Physical training is valuable. Just like we've seen, we need to care for our bodies. We eat well, we exercise well, but let that pale in comparison to training we do in godliness, in prayer, in the word, in fasting, in worship, in sharing the gospel. Train there. Train much more there. This body will last for a few years. The most healthy body is not guaranteed. We've talked about it to last through tonight, but godliness will last forever and ever. So let's not ignore the care of our bodies. Let's not idolize the care of our bodies. Then there's also implications here for our death. People sometimes wonder, as they think about death, whether they're going to be buried or cremated. Now, I want to be careful here because I'm not saying there's a biblical verse that I can point to that's, that commands burial. Nor am I saying that anybody who has not been buried or maybe been cremated or wants to be cremated is automatically just spiritually in the wrong. Or if you cremated a loved one in the past, that you were in the wrong and you should feel bad about that. The reality is, particularly we talked about persecution, as we talk about persecution tonight, many who have died for the gospel were not buried, burned at the stake. Bodies never found. So there's no way we're going to be legalistic here. But when you consider the biblical teaching on resurrection, I think you would have to conclude that the picture of burial is biblical. In other words, the burial, burial of the body points to the hope of resurrection of the body. When we place somebody's body in a tomb or in the ground, just as Jesus' body was put in a tomb, we're saying that we believe one day that body's going to rise again, just as Jesus rose again. This picture of burial and resurrection points to the gospel in Romans 6. All throughout the Old Testament, pointed to in places like Hebrews 11, we see significant tied to the burial of someone. So the point I want to make here is the picture of burial is biblical, and at the same time, the picture of cremation in many ways undercuts resurrection. Now again, even as I say that, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that if somebody's been cremated, they won't receive a resurrected body. Obviously, biblically, that is not true. How someone is buried or cremated is definitively not a determinant of their eternity. Faith in Christ alone determines that. 
What we're talking about here, though, is the picture of burial that points to the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus in a way that's not pictured in cremation. And I think this is worth noting. Russell Moore, I think, puts it best. He said, since we believe in the resurrection of the body, we do not see a corpse as garbage. From the time of our earliest ancestors in the faith, we've buried our dead, committing them to the earth from which they came with the conviction that they will one day be summoned from it once more. The image of sleep is useful, not because the dead are unconscious, but because they will one day be awakened. God deems as faith Joseph committing his bones to his brothers for future transport in the land of promise. In the same way, the act of burial is a testimony of the entire community to the resurrection of the body. Cremation is a horrifying testimony of the burning up of the flesh and bones, a testimony that is decidedly pagan in both origin and in practice. Of course, God can resurrect a cremated Christian or a Christian torn to pieces by lions. But how we deal with the body of a Christian teaches us and the watching world what we really believe about the gospel. Creation ought then to be shunned by those who hope in Christ. And I agree because we'll follow this. Christians look forward to the restoration of the body, not relief from the body. Our ultimate hope is not that we're going to be ultimately delivered from our bodies. No, our ultimate hope is that we're ultimately going to have risen, resurrected, restored bodies in the presence of God. So we even need to be careful when we talk about people who we know are in Christ and they die. Don't say, well, I'll never have the opportunity to hug my husband or wife again. Not true. You will. You will hug your husband or wife again there in Christ when you and he or she both have resurrected bodies. Don't say, I'll never see my son or daughter who died again. You will see them in more glorious ways than you ever saw them before. Our resurrection bodies will be physical, which makes us wonder then, well, what are they going to look like? What are our resurrection bodies going to look like? Pivotal passage on this is 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 57. You read through this passage and you see so many truths just flowing from it. Based on that passage, we can know that our resurrection bodies will be spiritually, spiritual, meaning entirely spirit-filled. So this is a perfect union, reunion of body and soul, free from sin. Our resurrection bodies will be entirely spirit-filled. Our resurrection bodies will be eternal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our resurrection bodies will be raised imperishable. They won't wear down or wear out over time, not susceptible to corruption. First, Second Corinthians 4, Paul t- talks about how our outer self is wasting away. And all of us know this. As, as this body grows older, resu- our, our bodies are, are susceptible to corruption. But our resurrection bodies will be completely healthy and completely strong forever. Listen to this quote from Johnny Erickson Tata, a quadriplegic herself, who talks about the hope of a glorified resurrection body this way. I hope in some way I can take my wheelchair to heaven. With my new glorified body, I will stand up on resurrected legs and I will be next to the Lord Jesus and I will feel those nail prints in his hands and I will say, thank you, Jesus. He will know, what I, he will know I mean it because he will recognize me from the inner sanctum of sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. He will, he will see that I was one who identified with him in the sharing of his sufferings. So my gratitude will not be hollow. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you, and the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think that I would ever have known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Now, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. (laughs) Our resurrection bodies will never need a wheelchair, ever. 
eternal. Our resurrection bodies will be beautiful. 1 Corinthians 15 says they'll be raised in glory. So imagine the sinless beauty of the inner person overflowing into perfect beauty in the outer person. We won't have to try to look beautiful. We will be beautiful. And I'm not talking here. Scripture's not talking about a vain beauty like we think about in this world. I'm talking about a real deep beauty. Like the beauty that's shown from Moses' face in Exodus 34. Daniel writes, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, Jesus says in Matthew 13. Our resurrection bodies will be powerful. 1 Corinthians 15 says that our bodies here are sown in weakness, but they will be raised in power. Now again, this doesn't mean we're all going to be like the bodybuilder type, but that our resurrection bodies will be strong. It'll be free from disease, free from weakness that we're familiar with in this world in so many different ways. Justin Martyr drew the parallel here between Jesus' healing ministry on earth and the ultimate healing of our resurrected bodies. He said all, the thing, all things which the Savior did, he did in the first place in order that what was spoken concerning him and the prophets might be fulfilled, that the blind should receive sight, the deaf hear, and so on, and also to induce the belief that in the resurrection the flesh shall arise entire. For if on earth he healed the sicknesses of the flesh and made the body whole, how much more will he do this in the resurrection so the flesh shall rise perfect and entire? Spurgeon described this conversation with his body as it aged. He said, I said of this poor body, you have not been newly created. The venom of the old serpent still taints you, but yet you shall be delivered. You shall rise again if you die and are buried, and you shall be changed if the Lord should suddenly come today. You poor body, which drags me down to the dust in pain and sorrow, even you shall arise and be remade in the redemption of the body. For the new creation has begun in me with God's down payment of his spirit. Oh, beloved, can't you rejoice in this? And then back to Johnny Erickson Tata, she says, I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives some, someone spinal cord injured like me, or someone who's cerebral palsy, brain injured, who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive, no other religion, no other philosophy promises, new bodies, hearts, and minds, only in the gospel of Christ to hurting people find such incredible hope. Now, some people wonder, are we going to recognize each other's resurrection bodies in heaven? And Scripture seems absolutely clear that our resurrection bodies will be recognizable. Based first and foremost on the fact that Jesus was recognizable in his resurrection body. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that God gives us a body as he has chosen and each kind of seed its own body. So this relationship, continuity between our bodies here and our bodies there. Matthew 8 pictures a table where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are all recognizable. Moses and Elijah are clearly recognizable by Peter in Luke 9. Thomas Odom biblically concludes then the glorified body is not a different body, but a different form of the same body. Based on all we know in Scripture, we will reflect our uniqueness Every one of us uniquely created in the image of God, Genesis 1. We will retain various distinctions. You look at a passage like Revelation 7, and you ethnicity, not a race there. Ethnicity, all tribes, peoples represented around the throne of God in heaven. You put this together, you have a glorious picture of resurrected bodies around the throne of God. I love the way Henry Alford depicts that reality in his hymn. You can read that later. The story just keeps getting better and better, though, because Scripture teaches that the return of Christ, the resurrection of Christians, will not just be for our bodies, but it will usher in the restoration of all creation. That's what Paul describes in Romans 8. Creation, longing, for redemption. Not just our bodies, but the creation groaning is in the pains of childbirth for restoration. There's a sense in which, yes, creation is longing for the redemption of our bodies, which will usher in the restoration of our creation. That's why Martin Luther said, our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. 
Creation will be physically restored in honor and beauty forever and ever. Randy Alcorn asked the question, do you ever sense creation's restlessness? Do you hear groaning in the cold night wind? Do you feel the forest loneliness, the ocean's agitation? Do you hear longing in the cries of the whales? Do you see blood and pain in the eyes of wild animals or the mixture of pleasure and pain in the eyes of your pets? Despite vestiges of beauty and joy, something on this earth is terribly wrong. The creation hopes for, even anticipates resurrection. We're going to talk about that more when we get to the hope of heaven. But for now, let's close this section with this. When the resurrected Christ returns, all people, Christians and non-Christians alike, will be resurrected for the day of final judgment. Obviously, we, we've seen the emphasis here in Scripture on the resurrection of Christians. But, but there's, there's a clear picture that it's Christians and non-Christians. Daniel chapter 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting con- contempt. Jesus' words in John 5 some to resurrection of life, some to resurrection of judgment. A truth that's reiterated in Matthew 25, again in Acts 24, where the Bible says there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, a resurrection to face judgment. So after the immediate state, intermediate state, the return of Christ, every one of us will one day be raised physically to face the final judgment. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.